Welcome to the Thrive Alcohol Recovery Podcast, where we share tips, information, and success stories about a revolutionary treatment for alcohol use disorder called the Sinclair Method, or TSM. TSM can help most people reduce rather than abstain from alcohol by addressing the root cause of problem drinking, which is inside the brain. I'm your host, Katie Lane, Sinclair Method success story and co-founder of Thrive Alcohol Recovery, where we help you find freedom from problem drinking using this approach so that you can live your best life. Let's dive into today's episode. So Lindsay, first, just thank you so much for joining me. Yes, thanks so much for asking me to come talk with you. I'm so excited to talk to you about this. Yeah, today. I know. I We had a coaching session and you've come to some of the TSM meetups and I just love the way you tell your story. Like you have a great sense of humor and just the way you tell it is really interesting. So I'm, I'm excited to kind of dive into some of the questions I have for you today. Um, do you want to just start by telling us a bit about your history with alcohol use? Yeah, so I started drinking really young. I was 12 years old. I'm 48 now, so, and I stopped drinking. Uh, It's a, it'll be a year ago in two weeks. So I'm jumping ahead just a little bit there, but I started when I was 12 and I drank for quite a long time. So, um, and I, it really progressed in college, you know, kind of at that time when it does for a lot of people, I think. Uh, and I went to school at a small liberal arts college here in Minnesota. And there was a dry campus, meaning there was supposed to be no booze on campus, but it was kind of, <clears throat> everyone knew what was happening. Obviously the recycling bins and all the dorm halls were full of empty bottles and cans. Everyone knew it, um, but, so we, we did a lot of drinking in our dorm rooms and while we studied even, uh, <clears throat> and I enjoyed that a lot. And then after college, I continued to drink and I was struggling with at the time in retrospect, and I was aware of it at the time too, was just kind of acclimating to life as a young adult, having just graduated from school and really being disappointed at the amount of money I was making and, you know, living in this kind of shabby apartment and but I loved to socialize and party with my friends who like to party like I did. And um, <clears throat> drugs are part of my story also, but nothing really stayed with me as long. Nothing at all stayed with me as long as alcohol did. Uh, and I remember kind of feeling like maybe I had an issue in my early twenties and being aware of it, but sort of laughing it off with my friends because the thought of quitting was so scary to me. I was just like, I can't even think about that. So I just didn't. Uh, <clears throat> and then I continued to drink through my twenties. I first went to uh, rehab in 2000, it was July of 2000. So about 21 years ago. And it was a 12 step based place. I didn't know that before I went. So I guess I didn't do my due diligence. I didn't do my due diligence. Uh, I came home to Minnesota. <clears throat> I didn't really have any quote unquote consequences yet. I didn't, um, I hadn't lost a job. I hadn't um, <clears throat> had any kind of legal consequences. And I also hadn't, but I was blacking out and I was, I had, I had fainted at work once and had a seizure. So there was that. But other than that, I was sort of like, well, 
Um, <clears throat> but I did want to get better. I did want to quit. I came home from San Francisco where I was living to call off a wedding. It was a really abrupt thing. And I got home and my parents were like, what's going on? And I started to talk about it. And they asked me if I'd been drinking a lot. And I said, yes. And they said, well, why don't you go to rehab? And I said, great. So I did. And um, pretty quickly learned, you know, you're put into a medical unit for the first three days uh, where people detox. Some people are given detox drugs like Librium and things like that. I didn't go in. I had just a glass of wine the night before uh, as a test. My parents were like, let's see if you can do it. Just one. Let's see if you can do it. And I was like, I'm going to do it. So I did. But as a result, I didn't go in needing to detox. And on that unit, you're kind of just left to yourself. They bring food to you. You're allowed to just sort of decompress. But then you get down to the unit. And within a few minutes, I realized I was in a 12-step program. And I thought, oh, no. And I really, right from the beginning, I thought, oh, no, this is not, this is not what I bargained for. And um, <clears throat> I spoke to the counselors about it. And they're ready for people like that there. They're trained for resistance because it is, <clears throat> the abstinence model is so scary for people. And as a result, people don't seek help, uh, myself included. So, and also not to mention the 12-step the, the model is not effective for a lot of people. So it was something I was just like, oh no, what am I gonna do? And then they, you know, they just tell you things like, you're defiant and you're unwilling and uh, <clears throat> you're loud. You just kind of have a big mouth. And what do you want? And then you tell them and they say, ha, what you want is you don't even know what's good for you. Your best thinking got you here. And what you want isn't what's best for you. And they sort of, and it's like, uh, and you real, I realized that I was up against something. And, and also my parents were, had been spoken to by the counselors as well, who scared them a lot. I mean, there's a lot of fear there and fear creates panic for people. So <clears throat> I didn't feel like I could really say anything because they would say things like, you're not unique. We've seen this so many times before. And unless you sit down and stop talking and take that cotton out of your ears and put it into your mouth, then you're gonna, you're never gonna learn anything. <clears throat> and I just thought, okay, Maybe that's, there's some truth to that. I'll open my mind and become willing. Um, but it never sunk in and, you know, then it's, you're the problem, not the program. And also the other thing too, is I didn't realize until later, maybe that same day that I'd spoken to the counselors that everyone else in the treatment center, almost everyone else in the unit I was in had been there Four. And so they all knew, they all heard that speech already, the one I just got, where I was called names and told I was an egomaniac with an inferiority complex, things like that. And I don't want to bash 12 step programs because I did glean some good things from them, but the, uh, I struggled with it a lot and I didn't stay sober. I was told to go to AA meetings, or I went to sober living. And um, because abstinence is how they measure success, it was, I, I, I felt the need to lie about being sober when I wasn't, because if I didn't lie about it, I would lose my housing because I was in sober housing. 
Uh, and then I would have to go to rehab again, meaning I would lose my job, uh, things like that. And then once the legal consequences started happening, I got DWIs, multiple. Uh, then you really have to keep any use of secret. Well, first of all, if you're using drugs or anything that stays in your system for more than a couple of days, they're going to catch you. Uh, <clears throat> but you can also kind of finagle around that a little bit. And, but you, you don't tell people in your life. You don't know who you can trust. Um, and you certainly don't want the law finding out because you'll go to jail for violating probation. So it all became very complicated and I learned to just keep it a secret. And because I kept my inability to stay sober a secret, I internalized a lot of bad feelings. And a lot of the messages that I was told in that rehab center kind of got in, even though I was like, that is not true. They kind of got in there. And so I started to feel bad and lie and then um, binge drink a lot because I was trying to hide it. So for example, I would um, go out to dinner with friends who thought I was sober because I said I was sober because I was actively lying about using and drinking, but I would have a bottle of booze in my purse. Okay, and everyone would be having a nice dinner and I would be sneaking off to the bathroom and swinging, and when you know that you can't go to the bathroom too much during a meal or people will start wondering what's going on, you get to that booze, you get in the bathroom and it was like gurgle, 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 gurgle. So many, I drink half the, the bowel. So, and of course I would get drunk and people would be like, what is going on? Um, and so it was really, and I went to treatment many times over the course of 20 years, I went, back to that same treatment center two more times. One of those times was an extended stay of six months. Um, and every treatment center that I went to, and then of course, once you start getting legal issues and you are court ordered to go to rehab, they were all 12 step based. And I just knew something was missing and, and I was super frightened because I felt as though my brain was working against me that I, anyone who's struggled with addiction understands that feeling of being one's own worst enemy. And it's super scary. And I, I, was, I was right about that, it turns out. I learned about the Sinclair Method and I was like, oh, my brain is working against me because of the way it is. That's just the way it works. When you engage in a behavior that releases endorphins, these neural pathways are strengthened and it happens. So you just gotta reverse it but I was never told about it. I did a lot of therapy. Um, I, and then I started to, so that's kind of in a, in a nutshell, that's, that's sort of my drinking story. And I, I came across the Sinclair method. Oh, and also in 2000, when I first went to, to rehab, they put me on naltrexone as a daily thing. And I was like, this isn't working by the way. And they're like, you know, and I did have side effects then, and I'll get into this in a little bit. When I did the Sinclair method, I didn't experience some of the side effects I've heard people talk about in those daily support meetings. And I'll talk a little bit about that, but I did feel side effects when I was taking it daily. Now I'm someone who struggled with depression and I was at an all-time low at that point. <clears throat> and so unbeknownst to me, because I didn't look into it, I did, again, no due diligence. I was kind of like, whatever you say, 
So I was told that's how it worked. Like you just need to surrender and listen and do what we say. Oh my gosh. So I was like, okay, (laughs) we know what else to do. Like, but I knew something was amiss. Um, But I knew I had a tough crowd in front of me too. Um, So I just kind of kept everything secret. Anyway, um, I didn't realize that it was blocking all my feel goods, my endorphins, all those opiates of all the time uh, when I was taking it daily. So that makes sense as to why I was feeling blue or I had, I believe it did affect my appetite too, but I was fine with that, frankly, (laughs) which is a whole nother conversation. Um, But I didn't learn about the Sinclair method until just a few years ago, I came across that documentary one little pill no and I watched it and I thought is this true I was like and all that stuff that I'd heard through 20 years of trying now I did do meetings I did do AA meetings during those 20 years off and on mostly off to be honest um it's hard to want to do something that doesn't feel like it's working um you know, it's hard to stay motivated. And so I, I, I didn't do meetings and I felt, I found actually that I did better and was able to maintain more days of, um, excuse me, I'm going to have to plug in my phone really quick and probably move no my problem. Position. Um, so where was I? Oh, 20 years. And I tried AA and I was pretty much, I was really never into it. And <clears throat> I didn't want to be that person at the meetings. I was like, this sucks. I don't like this. This program is not work. Like just, if you don't like it, don't do it. But there is a little bit of an edge to it where it's like, yeah, but if you don't do it, then you're going to relapse. See, cause you keep relapsing. So even though I knew that wasn't really true, it's, it had gotten in there into my subconscious. And again, that was subconscious. wasn't even something I really even thought about until right before I started the Sinclair Method as well, I became aware of those subconscious thoughts that drove drinking, you know, um, and other things that I've learned in the meantime. But I just didn't know anything. And I was stuck in a cycle of addiction and I couldn't make decisions. And it was right about uh, like the willpower piece. It is really tough to do it with willpower. They weren't correct about the why. It's not because I'm an egotistical person who just can't take instruction properly. It's because I sometimes lose my train of thought also. And sometimes I think it's because I'm older. But um, <clears throat> I, let's see, what was I saying about... Um, AA was right about the willpower, but right, it's because we only have so much willpower in our body and our brain stores every day. And when you use all of it up before you even leave for work in the morning, because you're making the decision to not drink every single day instead of just making the decision and committing to it and doing it, or you know, my mornings were always very harried, and I I had to, you know, pick out an outfit and decide whether I was gonna wear this or do this or how how you know late could I make it before I'd leave for the train to get to work and my mornings were just always crazy and they have been my whole life and unbeknownst to me 
all of my willpower had been used up before I left for work in the morning. <clears throat> so that's why willpower doesn't work. So I became aware of um, subconscious thinking. And um, then when I saw the Sinclair method, I thought, this is amazing. Now I didn't do it for a few years. And then I came across the documentary again. This was after I had read a book that I found really helpful. I don't know, can I say other publications? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Okay, so I read This Naked Mind, yeah, which was recommended to me by a bartender, by the way. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I know, it was really helpful. Um, and I thought the information was interesting and I believed it to be true, but for me, I was like, I don't think it's enough, however. This pattern is so ingrained in my mind and I don't have the capability to fight my brain every day, nor should I have to. Like we're born with this brain and it's amazing. And if you learn about it on a really basic level, you can change things, you know. That's so true. Uh, and it's pretty it's pretty simple stuff. It's not with the science behind it isn't the difficult part. And it wasn't for me. It was that indoctrination of this abstinence model that got into my brain even though I knew it didn't work and it, there was major parts missing yeah. namely that all of us are actually unique we all have our own individual experiences uh, and that there are common things that manifest with addiction through people but the reasons behind those are different yeah sometimes more complex it's more nuanced and I think the abstinence model just keeps it really simple People don't like to think about that complicated stuff, I think, myself included sometimes. Just keep it simple, it's easier. That black and white thinking is sometimes easier. Well, it's also detrimental, I think, because it's just not true. And also like, my point is it's not that complicated. I understood it after watching the Sinclair Method or the One Little Pill movie once. It was like, oh, that makes sense. And then reading about it more, watching that documentary again, and then trying it. And it totally worked. It totally <laughs> worked. And I haven't had a drink for almost a year. And more importantly, I haven't wanted to. I haven't thought about it, except for two times. And neither time did it sound appealing for more than five seconds. Wow. And neither time was I grieving the fact that I couldn't have it. And wow. therein lies the beauty because I couldn't, uh, I didn't have the fight in me to, and no one who does. Who does have the fight in them to reverse, you know, very firmly established neural pathways in their brain through behavioral stuff like, no, and I believe in, in, in changing habits and being cognizant of your, your goals and um, intentions, but just, it's not, you can't fight it. And so with naltrexone, you can, and it's not a fight, by the way. For me, it wasn't. I mean, I, I, but, but I, I didn't uh, share my experience with anyone while I was going through it and not even my therapist. And I wish I had, but I really bumped up against, I, I experienced had show me that I would bump up against um, resistance from people who cared about me and people yeah. I cared about. Because it's so unconventional. They're like, you're drinking to stop drinking? Like, no, that's not how it works. <laughs> and that's, and yep, it's counterintuitive. 
but then also for me, it was about being like, yeah, but it's really none of your business what I'm doing or how I'm doing this. And just because you don't like the idea of harm reduction, because it's more nuanced and complicated than just quitting, doesn't mean that it's the way that works. Just because it's the way you want it to work and you want it to be and you've told it, it you've been told all these years that it is, these people who love me and who I love have also been misinformed. It's not their fault. But I do run into some rigidity with people now. I have slowly started telling people I've talked to my therapist about it. And, and a lot of the secrecy with her was still tied up in that goofy abstinence model stuff of your success is really contingent upon you staying sober for how many days, how many weeks, how many months at a time. Not, and it became clear to me that I was like, you know, I need to talk to someone about this and, and have someone help me through this experience because again, I had already quit drinking by then and reached pharmacological extinction. But um, because it's a really interesting process and a lot of people don't know about it. It's super interesting process. And it's so, I realized obviously, and I knew it when I was doing it, how, talk about counterintuitive, lying or withholding information into your therapist, come on. Yeah. Come on, ma'am. And she, unbeknownst to me, I met her when I was in a court ordered uh, treatment. And then I continued on with her. And then once she left that place, I still didn't tell her. She was no longer, um, I was no longer, I completed all the stuff I needed to complete. She was no longer mandated to report to anyone about my behavior, but I was still really protective of it. I also wanted to make sure it worked, but it has felt so different. It's amazing. And I got a prescription from uh, my, uh, the person who I get antidepressants from, a psychiatrist. Uh, and I'd started taking those regularly, which was obviously really helpful. Um, and I started doing the Sinclair method in secret, but I did things that I was supposed to do. Like uh, I charted my drinks and I journaled about my drinking experiences and how I was feeling. Writing for me is really helpful way to process stuff. So. Um, and going back and reading those journal entries is really interesting too. Um, when I first started it, I dropped from 30 drinks a week, like 20 to 30 drinks a week, to it like cut in half immediately. Um, and immediately noticed the, I said, I, I decided that I didn't want to, I'd always drank in secret. Like I said, it started early. When I started drinking at 12, I wasn't out socially drinking in bars. You know, I was like sitting in the walk-in closet, drinking a wine cooler. Going to the bathroom of the restaurant. Yeah. What? Going to the bathroom of the restaurant when you were out with your friends. And then I was like 35. <laughs> like what? I used to love to drink in secret too. So I'm laughing with you here. <laughs> I know, I know, I know, I know. It's, um, but part of my deal was I was like, I better not drink. Uh, in private anymore because I, uh, I was concerned also about safety. I was like, I could hurt myself. You know, I live alone and I moved into this new house and it's really tiny. It's the size of a matchbox, but I opened the door that goes down to the basement and I looked at the bottom of the stairs and I said, I'm going to die at the bottom of those if I don't quit drinking. 
And that was super real to me. I said it kind of jokingly, I think. I don't know who was here. It might've been my realtor even. <laughs> he knows me because he's an old family friend, but it was really not funny. I was honestly scared of that. I was like, um, so I would go to bars and that's the first time I took naltrexone. I went to a bar and I took the pill an hour before I was to drink and my craving for drinking had dissipated quickly within that hour, like within the first five minutes. But I was like, okay, Lindsay, now it says you got to drink when you're on it for it to work. And I understood that. And guess what? I don't have to explain that to anyone. You know, like I am an adult and I can make decisions for myself based on my experiences and I understand my limitations. Um, so I said, you know, that whole notion of, well, you, of course you're going to do this because you get to drink on it. I'm, I'm, at, I'm trying to get help to stop drinking. And my intention was not to drink like a normal person. My intention was to, to become abstinent. Um, but I, so I knew I needed to drink for it to work. So I went to a bar and I got there and I kind of wandered in and, you know, it's dark in there in the middle of the day. And I ordered a beer and it was, you know, like three in the afternoon or something like that. Um, not really done with work yet, but okay. Uh, and uh, I was in the like the pub club or whatever. So my pint got automatically upgraded to like this giant mug thing. And um, she, the bartender who knew me and was friendly, uh, you usually would hand me this drink and I would intercept it and just like right to the mouth, you know, like bowl of ramen. Um, but I didn't, I, and I was like, she paused for a second and I sort of motioned like you can set it down and she did. And that beer sat there for like 10 minutes. Now I was like on my phone and stuff like that, but that's, that's not normal. Like that's not at all my usual experience then and there. And I noticed quickly that the bar was kind of annoying. Like it smelled weird and the TV shows were super annoying. And um, just me and the same people as it is every day that I go in there. Um, and the whole experience, and I, I didn't finish my beer. Also, that never happened. Now it's a brewery, right? So it had this weird kind of hoppy smell in the place that I'd never really noticed either. It was kind of unpleasant. Um, and just the whole scene was just kind of like, ugh. Um, I, I wasn't feeling it. I wasn't getting that same endorphin rush. And that in and of itself was super exciting to me. Um, and I went home and I didn't drink anymore and I didn't think about drinking. And that was like that day I felt for the first time in my life, like there's hope here. There's hope here, I can't believe this. And then, so that was November of 2019. Okay, so almost two full years ago from right. today, okay. Uh, well, what would it be like a year and eight months or something like that? Yeah. Yes, so, and then by March of 2020, all the bars and restaurants closed because of COVID. So my plan to only not drink at home was thwarted. So 
I drank at home. By this time, I was four months in and my drinking, like I said, had already been cut in half and I was plateaued kind of at like about eight to 10 drinks a week. And that was usually over two days. So I wasn't drinking every day. It was generally like one to two days a week. By the end, it was usually one day. So eight drinks in a week would happen in one night. So that was still binging. Um, and I was just drinking beer. I had switched from like the stronger beers that I liked to now I preferred just regular beer, like lagers. Um, and then I eventually went to those super disgusting spiked seltzers that are a headache in a can um, that are really low alcohol or like 5% or something like that. A headache in a can. I love it. terrible. <laughs> but I drank the whole 12 pack. It, that one just was spread out over more days, actually. Okay. They're disgusting. They became popular like right when I quit drinking. So I never got to enjoy them. You're not missing anything. Even Zima, which was popular when I was like in my early 20s. It was like this clear Swedish, but not Swedish, like this Sweden, but sweet-ish drink. But even that was malt liquor and it was way stronger. Um, but anyway, I digress. And I, so I was drinking at home then. Um, and then uh, still charting everything, kind of had plateaued, was worried a little bit. I was, but I knew because I'd started watching your videos. Also, by the way, thank you. They were so helpful. I found your YouTube channel. Thank you. Watch those, yes. Awesome. All those tips and tricks were super helpful. And, I didn't drink hard liquor like you had mentioned, but I wasn't anyway, like I kind of stopped drinking hard liquor over the years. I just had lost interest in it. So, and I was really at a place mentally where I was ready to just honestly look at this and say, all right, you need to look at the facts in front of you and see if it's true. And if the science is right, and if it works, give it a try. I was a little apprehensive. I was afraid it might not work. Um, and I'm sure that I'm sure you hear that a lot. Uh, it's it's kind of like this is my last chance. Mm -hmm. um, so, but I was really mentally ready for it, and um, I do think it would have been more helpful for me to have been talking to someone through the process. In hindsight, mm -hmm. um, I chose not to do it that way, and it still worked, and it was relatively painless. There were times that I look back in the journal and I was struggling. There were some dark days in there. But I never blacked out, excuse me, I blacked out once after starting the Sinclair method only. I used to black out regularly. Um, and I never went over what I had. I never went, so when I started Sinclair method, I was at like 20 to 30 drinks a week. I never went over that amount while doing the Sinclair method. Um, and I was, uh, I took it every time. I took naltrexone every time and I waited an hour every time. Uh, and I never felt panicked during that hour that I had to wait or like, oh my God, I need to get a drink of me right now. It was never like that. Um, and it kind of, like I said, at the time, at the point when I had to start, it felt like I had to start drinking, right? It became that, not, all right, good. It's time for a drink. Thank goodness. I set a timer and it just went off. It wasn't like that. It was, okay, well, now I guess I should have a drink. Um, but I, I, I still had that kind of bingy habit where I take it all down in one day um, or two days. Can I ask you the habit, the bingy habit? Because I see that with people where they 
are reducing their drinking, but then when they do drink, they're drinking way more than they want. So can you tell me, tell us more about that experience and kind of what insights you've gleaned from the habit or what that behavior, why that behavior was happening? I wonder sometimes, I have wondered if it's because my intention was to become abstinent, not to drink like a normal person. Like my intention wasn't to now create a life for myself where I could go out and have drinks with friends sometimes. That ship had kind of sailed for me. I didn't want to do that anymore. Um, I really wanted to not wrestle with alcohol in any way, shape or form. So my experience, I am, I don't know. I've heard people speaking in the, in the, in the daily meetings who are struggling with it. I, with that, like, it's not really turning me into a quote unquote normal drinker. I'm still kind of acting a fool and drinking too much when I drink. I don't know. I had faith that it would work because I really believed in the science and I knew the average time that it took most people to reach pharmacological extinction. And, and you've clarified the difference between that and abstinence on your channel and um, not pharmacological abstinence being, I really don't even think about it anymore. That switch has been flipped back. Those pathways dwindled into nothing and died. And other stronger ones took their place. Because when I stopped drinking, I started to, things started to come to the surface that I really enjoyed doing. And I had the brain power and the interest in doing it. I had the interest in learning about really what was going on with me and the rest in the world in general. Like I enjoy, started to enjoy new hobbies and things like that too. But I don't know if the, the binge piece was like, like brushing through it or, because I knew if I had, my experience had shown me in the past that if I bought a six pack and didn't finish it all in one day and still had one or two left over the next day, which never really happened, that I would start drinking then, those start with those two, and then that would set me off for the rest of that day then. So I wonder if it might have to do with that habit. Um, That's really interesting. I don't know. I, 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 I would like to speak to people and hear more and, and I, who have had the experience of pharmacological extinction, yet they still drink. I just can't be bothered with it anymore. Like not drinking is preferable to me. It just happened organically. It happened because I took naltrexone and did the Sinclair method and it worked. So yeah. It kind of makes me think like that binge type behavior. It kind of makes me think if like we've got a plate full of food and we're just in this habit of always finishing, even though it's 30% more than we need to be full, we'll just eat it anyway. I, I wonder, cause that sounds like it's a little bit of what you're speaking to, like just finish yeah. it all, get it done. And then you don't have to think about it. So it's really yeah. interesting. I mean, there were even times, this is before I started the Sinclair method where I'd buy a six pack or something and I'd start drinking it. And then I'd like, take the last two bottles out to like some street corner and set them on the corner for someone to take because I didn't want them in my house yeah. but I couldn't dump them god forbid to dump those yeah I mean uh I 
think this Sinclair method is so fascinating. As simple as it is, it's so fascinating. And I obviously, it has changed my life. I, I can't, like I said, I had struggles during it. Um, and, but I didn't have struggles with the method in and of itself. Like staying compliant was all right, made, was fine. Um, I didn't struggle with side effects, like I said. Um, I, I guess I did have like extra bad hangovers. I've heard people talking about that when they drink on naltrexamine, hangovers were extra bad. That had started happening before I did the uh, Sinclair method. That's, I had already started having those hangovers that last two or three days, you know? Um, so I didn't equate that with any kind of side effect. Um, any struggles I had with the Sinclair method were really more struggling against some deeply ingrained beliefs uh, that I knew intellectually not to be true, but that had gotten in there. Uh, like the stuff you learned was, from AA? Yeah. Uh, yes. And, and yes, like that abstinence only. You're playing with fire. Your disease is out in the parking lot doing push-ups, don't you know? And it's like, it's not a specter out in the parking lot doing push-ups. And if it is, I better be doing some push-ups too instead of sitting on my butt in the meeting eating donuts and drinking bad coffee. <laughs> um, I, but yes, that stuff did get in there. And I, I remember feeling those first few days, the first time I went to rehab, like this little tiny shamed child. And then they try to say to you, well, shame is your problem though. And it's like, well, then stop triggering it, please, or, or validating it by telling me things like, you just don't know what you're talking about. You know, um, I didn't get a lot of encouragement and validation. There's just, I felt um, that if I told people about it, going back to why I didn't talk to, to people about it, that, that they would give me pushback and that I really didn't have the wherewithal to fight back because A, it's none of their business and B, I'm not a scientist, so if you're really interested in this program, watch this documentary when you're not all judgy towards me about it. You know, I felt like I got some judgment from people. And... Even if they're well-meaning, they can give judgment yes. like, oh, you're fine, or, you know, because there, a lot of people have shame around their own drinking or, or in the back of their mind, they're like, maybe I'm drinking problematically, but, or they want you to just join, join them in their fun. So I know what you're talking about exactly. <laughs> And, and the interesting piece about AA is if I was relapsing regularly, which I was, people were like, well, are you still going to meetings though? I'm like, yeah. And they're like, okay, good. And I'm like, no, man, that whole definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. That also applies to trying the same recovery program over and over again, expecting different results. Yeah. It doesn't just wow. apply to drinking and whatever else you're saying. So you were at it for 20 years, like in that system of rehab, court-ordered sobriety. And because, yes, because I couldn't quit, because I didn't realize, even though I was experiencing it in my own body, I was told it was my problem that, that the scientific fact of when someone is addicted to a substance, when, they, when that substance is taken away, the craving does not dissipate over time. It actually gets worse. 
And I had to watch the one little pill twice before I even got that message. That was like the main thing is like, and if that's the case, then our approach to recovery is backwards as well. Yeah. And it was like, oh yeah, it's true. Because I remember absence indeed does make the heart grow fonder when I was sitting in rehab and when I was trying to string days together. It indeed made me, and it's the human condition to want something you can't have also. It was just, I I didn't have a fight in me. And I also didn't have a leg to stand on because I couldn't stop drinking. And so people are like, well, what are you, what exactly are you going to do? I think it's unfortunate that it's the Sinclair method is not suggested. And I'm hoping that is changing because it's, people need to know about it. They need to know about it and decide for themselves if they want to do it. It's, it's not, it's not ethical to recommend stuff that doesn't work for people and to line your pockets with the money that you get from people relapsing. And, and, and it's just, you know, yeah, it's pretty intense. So, and something, when I think about that, I just, it's so disheartening to me. Yeah. Um, because I want to believe people are good people. And I think people on the front lines are. There's a lot of turnover rate though in that industry. The counselors who work in that industry, we turn over a lot. Hmm. There's a reason for that. And I think it's because it's such a difficult program and it's so ineffective. Yeah, I've heard that from counselors. Yeah, to help, try to help people. And they constantly are falling on their face and feeling worse and worse and worse. It would be heartbreaking to be bound by your institution or your place of works weird old-fashioned ideologies that must be heartbreaking so anyway I love the Sinclair method it changed my life and I really 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 hope that things change around it and that's why that's honestly was the main reason I told my therapist about it so that she had it in her toolbox like you should really know about this, but in, but also that I wanted support and to talk about my experience with it. Absolutely, you know? yeah. And talking with you helped so much too. And I honestly wish that I had talked with you while I was doing it, because I think it is helpful to have coaching through it. I think so too, and just that support. And I mean, I think what I hear from a from people who've done AA a lot, what they miss about it is the fellowship and the camaraderie. And hopefully we're slowly building that within the TSM community, but we really need that. I think even science supports having, you know, group therapy or some type of support when you're trying to make this change. So indeed, yes. What else were you doing besides just taking the pill? Were there other mindfulness or habitual things you were becoming more aware of and trying to change alongside just taking the medication? Um, I'm always, uh, to be honest with you, let's see. So one part of my story also is that the liquor stores then closed also when I live in Minneapolis and um, George Floyd was murdered and there were riots in town and things like that and protests peaceful, but there were also some not so great things happening and businesses had to board up and the liquor stores closed. And I was approaching the liquor store one Sunday afternoon and I got there and it was closed. And I was like, oh, well, 
And normally I would have been like, oh no, what are we gonna do? And I was just kind of like, oh well. Go back home, and a month later, I was I quit drinking. You know, so, oh, I love that. And and, and I haven't um, been working, so I've been I've had a relatively stress-free time of it because I haven't had the stress of work. That's a big stressor for me. I have a, a complicated relationship with money that I'm also now just starting to explore um, changing that relationship. Um, again, things have started to, my eyes have started to open to things that are like, oh, this is really interesting. Learn about this. Learn about, learn, just learn about it with no judgments attached. Just be open-minded and learn about it. Um, and so not working, but also collecting unemployment. And so not having the stress of being jobless. So it's been, there's, there's been low stress there and that's been really nice. And I've had time to spend days doing things that I really enjoy doing. Um, something that I've always done that's helped me is uh, to just uh, be physically active. I'm a jogger. Um, and I, so I was starting to get back on board with that on, on a regular schedule. I was kind of more doing it sporadically for, for a while, for about a year, to be honest. I also started running when I was 12. That same year I started drinking, interestingly enough. But um, I, so I started to, to run more often. I also practiced yoga and I didn't start meditating until in earnest until about two, three months ago. So I think that would have been really helpful. I do have kind of a high stress response and would like to work on that. Um, <clears throat> just kind of internal regulation uh, around that. I've done some cognitive behavioral therapies. I did do regular talk therapy, but again, I didn't talk to her about what I needed to talk to her about. So that kind of doesn't, um, I was cognizant of, like I said, I did the, the tracking of my drinks, journaling. I watched your YouTube stuff and I, I was kind of, I'm just now starting to develop habits and more rituals, um, like meditating in the morning, um, taking time for myself. I cut way back on coffee. That helped me a lot too. Um, with stress response stuff. And I have spent a lot of time reading about, you recommended the abstinence myth to me, which is also, I thought, I thought was a really good book. It's a quick read. And it's a really easy read too, but it's really, really good. Uh, educating myself on recovery methods that aren't abstinence-based, harm reduction. Um, and just, it, it's opened up a whole new world. It's, it's so interesting to me. So sort of by just kind of organic process, once that craving and need and obsession for alcohol was gone, my mind was able to open up to enjoy other things and to become a more fully functioning human being. Like, yeah, now I can actually leave the house and not be like running to the train in the morning. Or part of that's because I'm not working and I'm not taking the train. But my goal is to 
not, you know, run out of the house, over caffeinated, running late, dog dashes out. Oh my, what am I going to do? You know, just all that nonsense that takes away my energy so quickly. Um, and uh, looking at things objectively, trying to work on separating myself from my emotions, uh, working with two therapists now, you know, um, just, I mean, that's kind of, they're taking just kind of a more holistic approach and really understanding. Also working with therapists to understand perhaps why I started drinking in the first place, perhaps why patterns in my life other than drinking are repeating. I wasn't willing to talk about certain things that were presented to me before by therapists. Like I was always like, my family was totally fine. I'm the one who screwed up. You know, like I need to figure out what's wrong with me. It was like, actually things were not great at home. You weren't horrible, but you were attuned to that even as a little baby and you have these subconscious beliefs and you adjusted in the best way you knew how and you have attachment issues now, you, you struggle. And those you know, patterns in my life besides drinking that um, repeated over and over again that I was told in the past that, well, the reason you keep doing those things over and over again is because you're an alcoholic. And it's like, that's not why, man. That stuff started a long time ago. I started drinking because it made me feel better. You know, certain things, like I sucked my thumb beyond infancy to the point where I was old enough to remember being told I had to stop. You know, I was engaged in self-soothing behaviors. My brother was too, zoned out on the television, sucked his thumb past infancy. Um, so just really willing to take an honest, not beating myself up look at really what was going on and sorting it out. It's amazing when you get the alcohol problem under control, like you said, it's it opens up a whole new world. And like, you really mean that because it opens up like whole new lease on life. I think I see that so often with people where you can heal the other things that you were unaware of, or, you know, couldn't even think about touching before because alcohol was such the huge burden in your life. So that's so amazing. Um, yeah. So not to be frightened all the time. Yeah. So just to wrap up, I want to ask you one more question and that is what, what is one thing you might tell people or a few things who are considering this in Claremont that if you have advice for people out there who struggled like you, because I think sometimes people think, oh, my alcohol drinking, my relationship alcohol is like so bad, or it's been going on for so long. They've tried other things that haven't worked just like you, and they're afraid this method won't work. So what advice or tips do you have for people out there? I highly recommend watching the documentary, One Little Pill. And if you don't really fully understand it the first time, or if you sort of find yourself resisting it, watch it again. Um, sometimes it takes me a couple times with something. Um, and really be cognizant of your blind spots around it. Like, why do I feel like this won't work? Is it really because the science is bogus? No. Or is it because confirmation bias tells me that other stuff hasn't worked in the past and that this is my last shot, like thinking in super extremes, black and white again. Um, 
and something that I, like I said, I felt my brain wasn't on my side and it wasn't. So if you are going to drink anyway, I have talked to a few young people, younger, you know, young women about the Sinclair method who called me about it, um, you know, kind of referred to me by someone else. And they were so hesitant to admit that they had been drinking anyway. So one of the three I spoke to started, had gotten naltrexone. And I said, okay, so did you start it? And she's like, yeah. And then she's like, I said, are you drinking? She's like, no, I can't drink. And I was like, well, yeah, you can. I mean, when was the last time you had a drink? And she hesitated and it's like three days ago. And I'm like, okay, so you're drinking anyway. So you can actually have it work for you and not against you. So have it work for you and believe that this is gonna work because it works. I mean, it's so much more legit to have science in front of you that's so simple that explains it than to say, I'm gonna try this method that I think should work because somebody told me it should and that if it doesn't work, it's my problem. Like there's no reason to struggle so hard through this when only 10% of people who struggle with substance use disorder get help. And then only a very small percentage of those people actually recover through traditional abstinence methods. Why would I even buy it? Like even that got into my head, like, and that's such, it just, the proof wasn't in the pudding for me. And it's really, really, this method works. So if you're gonna drink anyway, have it work for you and not against you. And for it to work, you have to, you do have to drink on it. And then you have to have days when you don't drink, but you have those days that I didn't drink, I didn't feel like I wanted to drink. I was really happy to not be drinking on those days. Um, so that's something I would say, um, because in my experience, now again, my goal was abstinence. I did, I did reach pharmacological extinction. I cannot speak, unfortunately, to the drinking like a normal person going out for drinks with a friend. However, if at any time I start to drink again, which I don't anticipate, I really, really don't. Yeah. Um, I would take an naltrexone before I drank. You know, it's there for you. Yeah. Um, but it just, I can't be bothered with it anymore. Like I, I also, and reading about how the pressure to drink, it's just really not that big of a deal. Like it's such a silly, don't even, like there are a lot of books that, that help me through that. Like drink like, uh, sorry, it's called quit like a woman. Drink like a woman. <laughs> not drink like a woman. Although that's part of it. Quit like a woman by Holly Whitaker was really helpful for me around, and this naked mind was also helpful. The abstinence myth was great. I'm currently reading the cure for alcoholism. So I can't speak too much to that book too. Uh, but if you're gonna drink, make it work for you, not against you. Uh, and it doesn't have to be agonizing and awful. You also don't have to worry about going through withdrawal because your body does it for you naturally when you do the Sinclair method. You know, you don't have to be medically withdrawn, you know, gone through withdrawal. You don't have to, you don't have to agonize through this experience. And there's nothing wrong with you if a, if a, if a, program that doesn't really work for most people doesn't work for you. 
there are other ways and you have agency, you can speak up for yourself and what you want does matter. You don't just want to drink all the time. You want to get better. Otherwise you wouldn't be even talking about it or thinking about it. You know, being told that, well, you obviously don't want to get better. You're not quitting. You're in denial. You're this, you're that. No, there's just something missing. And I know it and you don't like that. So um, I would recommend educating yourself about it. Um, reading, for me, like I said, educating myself was the first step, but I knew it probably wasn't enough and that I needed some pharmacological help, you know, to actually, I kind of was like, man, I'm too old now. This has been going on forever. And by the way, I have struggled for 20 years, like, trudging the road to happy destiny trudge being the operative word it's horror like it doesn't have to be that bad i if i had to if i had to make the decision every day not to drink i wouldn't i've, I've been there and i wasn't able to do it yeah for me it's just been so much more peaceful to let the magic happen and not fight it uh and also not i, I hear people worrying about things that i also worried about in the very beginning I think it's important to start taking the medication via the Sinclair method and just kind of let it do its work for the first, what would you say for the first? Like at least month or a couple of right. months, just get that habit under control because that in and of itself is doing a lot neurologically. So much. Know. People yeah. I think are, are quick to dismiss that maybe um, and for fear, you know, just for fear that's not going to work for them, but that that the changes happening that you may not feel um, are happening on a cellular level and you're going to see them shortly. Yeah. And you can enjoy life. You really can. I never thought I'd feel this way about alcohol. Never. I thought I was going to struggle for the rest of my life with it. Wow. That was so powerful. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yes. I appreciate you so much for sharing your story. I feel like we could talk for her another hour maybe i'll have you back on again actually but i'd be was happy to do it okay thank you it was so awesome to chat with you thank you, you for sharing and we'll talk to you again soon thank you for tuning in to the thrive alcohol recovery podcast for additional sinclair method resources and support please check out the information in our show notes we look forward to seeing you on the next episode